Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to the Arthritis Life Podcast. I'm so excited today. I have Stephanie, who's the rheumatoid arthritis coach. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like your age and what's your relationship to rheumatoid arthritis? Sure. My name is Stephanie. I'm the rheumatoid arthritis coach. Just like you, I'm a mother, teacher, volunteer. I'm also a family nurse practitioner, and I also have rheumatoid arthritis. And, and where are you in the world right now? I'm located in Las Vegas, Nevada. And how old are your kids, if you don't mind me asking? So I do have little kids. There's Right now, they're six and three. Great. So we are, yeah, we're similar because I also have a six-year-old. <laughs> no, no littler than that, but... Yeah, that's a lot. I, I want to ask you so many questions about your family. But first, I would love to hear a little bit about your journey with rheumatoid arthritis. You know, when did you get diagnosed and, and what was your response to the diagnosis? Sure. So I was diagnosed after the birth of my first child, which is very common in people with autoimmune diseases, especially rheumatoid arthritis. I brought my first baby home and out of the blue, I couldn't use my left thumb or even hold my baby anymore because my hands were so stiff and immobile. I had the bilateral wrist pain. It was so bad. I couldn't feed my baby, hold my baby, change his diapers. It was very limiting. At wow. that time, I, at that time, I had already been in medicine for over 10 years and I had gone to multiple physicians with these complaints and concerns without any answers. Uh, everything kept coming back normal. And eventually I did my own reading, went into my own old textbooks, went into my own research, and I actually ordered my own diagnostic labs. And then I brought the results into my primary who reviewed them with me. And we both agreed that 
the markers for rheumatoid arthritis were there and that I needed to see a rheumatologist. Oh my gosh. I think you're the first person I've met who actually not just self-diagnosed in terms of like reading about the symptoms and thinking that they had it, but you actually ordered your own labs. That's incredible. I mean, I have such a mixed reaction to that because on the one hand, it's it, I'm amazed that you had the gumption to do that. But on the other hand, I get frustrated that your other providers didn't do it for you, that you had to do it yourself, you know? Yeah. In their defense, because yeah. I did, I did feel like they all cared and they all tried and they all did the best they could. A new mom does have a lot going on and it was a much more likely outcome that I was having postpartum depression or psychosomatic manifestations of depression, carpal tunnel, right? Carpal tunnel is really common in pregnancy and after birth. So I don't hold any grudges. I'm not angry, but that's how I got to my diagnosis was I actually did order my own labs. So once I went to see my primary, she referred me to a rheumatologist I, just like everybody else, despite me working in medicine, waited, I believe, four months to see her. Um, She was wonderful, and I actually still see her today. She told me I do have rheumatoid arthritis. I walked out of the office, and I sat in my car for about 10 minutes and cried. And after about 10 minutes, I thought, well this is not okay. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to not only take control of my diagnosis, but I'm going to help other people do this too. And I started getting out there looking at resources and therapies and whatever I could get my hands on, honestly, for patients, for myself as a patient. And in the city where I live, there was almost nothing. There were no support groups. There were no events. There were no activities. So about a year into my diagnosis, I started the first local arthritis support group through the Arthritis Foundation. So from there, I had the support group for about three years. And through the support group, I carried and delivered my second child. So as you know, uh, pregnancy and childbirth is a very sensitive issue in any women with autoimmunity. So I think it was a very interesting experience for not only myself, but the people that attended the support group. With my hands full with two small children, I had to hand the support group over to two wonderful women who were very graciously accepting of the leadership position and I had to step down. And that took us to right about February of this year when I emailed back the arthritis foundation and said, Hey, I want to get back in. It's 2020. So depending on where you all live, uh, our shutdown was March 17th of this year. (laughs) So we had this big shutdown and everything in person was closed. So I was no longer in line to restart the support group. So in March, I decided everything else is online now that we're all shut down. And I opened a complete virtual program and it's been amazing. So very long story short, that's been my journey. And that's what I do with it today. That's so great. Another way that we're like RA twins here, because I also started my program in March as well. I'm curious, what setting were you working in as a nurse practitioner prior to your diagnosis? So when I was first diagnosed, I was actually in critical care. So nurse practitioners were nurses first. Yeah. And so I was a critical care nurse for about five years. And at this point, when I was officially diagnosed, I had been a nurse practitioner in critical care for an additional five years. So all of my experience was in critical care. And then just so for people in the audience who may not know, is that the same thing as ICU or intensive care units? Yes. It's the same thing as ICU. Yeah. So, and that's not really a low stress job, I would imagine. (laughs) It's not low stress. And the very interesting thing about it was, so in the ICU, many people are on breathing machines and they have big IVs called central lines and they have sometimes chest tubes 
And for any of you who have experienced this either firsthand or with a family member, there's a lot of tubes. And with those tubes, you actually need quite a bit of hand dexterity. And oh, yes, I can imagine. <laughs> so the year that I left ICU was just the a very shortly year after I was diagnosed because I simply couldn't keep up with the procedures and the 14 hours on our feet and the just walking a hospital is, I mean, you walk miles a day working in a hospital. The only, you know, career that walks more is a waitress, right? Like a server. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I had that job in the ICU, our schedule was actually seven days on seven days off. So we would work for seven days and then the very little bit of sleep we did get, we were on call. So we would get intermittently disturbed during our sleep. So we literally worked for seven days straight and then had seven days off. And it was obviously not a compatible lifestyle with RA because as we all know, autoimmunity is, it is very important that you get good sleep, high quality sleep, enough sleep, all of that. And so I actually left the only medical specialty that I knew at the time, I'd been there almost 11 years total, my whole career, my whole adult life, I had worked in the ICU and I left it because of the disease. And I remember at the time thinking my life was over. I, I can't believe I have to do this. You know, all of these same feelings that everybody has and communicates all the time about uh, the fears and the, the anxiety about having to change careers due to a chronic illness and all the other things that go with it. But I have to tell you, it's only made me better because I got out there and I pushed my limits and I learned new skills. And I have been in so many different specialties now that I have so much more medical experience and knowledge and I'm able to help even more people. And for anybody who is afraid of losing their job or changing jobs due to a chronic illness, I would really say, just go for it. Just jump in, stay positive, stay open-minded. And I really think it'll take you somewhere amazing because it really did for me. That's such a great point. Cause yeah, I know that there are many patients who are inspired by their own experiences as a patient and want to become a provider, but they often worry that, Oh, I'm not going to be able to physically cope. And so I think one of the keys that I found is that choosing a, a, a healthcare career that is really flexible, where you can do lots of different kinds of settings. For example, if you're a massage therapist, no matter, almost no matter what I would imagine you're using your hands, right? So there's not really a lot of flexibility with your body. Whereas like, yeah, for nursing or for something like occupational therapy, it, you can work in a highly physically demanding setting, like in your case, like an ICU, or like I know friends who work in a NICU as an occupational therapist, like neonatal intensive care with little tiny babies, but they're doing a lot of those tiny, tiny little small motor things, or they're getting all those finicky snaps and stuff onto the babies. And so, you know, you could choose to do something like that, or you could choose a more like in, in my case, you know, I worked in a school um, elementary school. And that was actually a lot easier on my body than working in like a hospital setting. So long, long story short, again, is, you know, knowing or choosing a career that you can be flexible in is, has been really important for me. And so it's, it's great to hear you say that as well. Yes. It's really important that we change our mindset, right? You can't change your job or your career or the setting where you work but you can change how you adapt within your career or finding a new career or finding adaptations within that career. I have a very good friend who has rheumatoid arthritis. She's also a type one insulin dependent diabetic. And she was actually a nurse in a very, very busy labor and delivery floor, which is very busy and very demanding. And recently she came to terms saying, you know, I just, I can't keep up with this physical activity anymore. And she became a diabetic educator at a clinic where she sits most of the day and talks to people who are newly diagnosed with diabetes. And it has completely changed her life. Her, her rheumatoid arthritis, and of course her diabetes are better managed. She sleeps better. It's lower stress. She has incredibly lower pain than she did previously it's just been really great. So I think it's really important to always remember that 
you can't change your job. You can only change you and your attitude going into it is everything. That's, that's such a beautiful example. Uh, I remember I'd had, I've had rheumatoid arthritis for almost 18 years. And when I was pregnant, I got gestational diabetes. And so I remember that first appointment with the diabetes educator. And I remember thinking, why isn't there that role for rheumatoid arthritis? Like, why isn't there you know, automatically when you get diagnosed with, uh, you know, in any sort of inflammatory arthritis, why don't you get an appointment with an educator that's going to help you navigate it? Cause it's so such a big, massive, you know, life change. And then you're just left, like you said, you're left in the parking lot, you know, metaphorically and physically to sort through it all. So that's part of you know my motivation for forming arthritis life. And I know your motivation too, for being a rheumatoid arthritis coach is just, you know, giving more support and resources to people who, who just really need it. Right. Well, I have to say when I started in medicine, for example, diabetic education was a very new thing and everybody wasn't getting it like they are today. You know, now you get diagnosed with diabetes, you get referred to a diabetic educator, it's covered under insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So And I am so excited to pave the way for this educational pathway and this resource. And I can't wait to see where this takes us all in the future. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, when you became like a rheumatoid arthritis patient, did it change how you see your role, your role as a provider? Like, did you, I know a lot of times people become a patient after being a provider. They're like, oh my gosh. I had all these epiphanies of like ways that the systems could be better. Or do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Oh, 100%. I always tried my best to be conscientious and pay attention, you know, just simple, just, just human kindness, just paying attention. And after I was diagnosed, it was even more important to me to be a good listener. I don't want to say that I wasn't a good listener before, but now I'm a better listener and I'm better at follow-up questions. And it's really important as a provider that when I do see patients, because I do still practice, that when I do see patients, it's classic, right? Well, you don't look sick, but they say they have an eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 pain. They need disability form signed. They are requesting a handicap parking placard right? All of these things, but they look fine, right? We all hear this. It's all over social media. It's all over everything. The, you don't look sick, right? And so being a patient and learning to deal with the chronic disease and the chronic pain while still looking fine has been my own challenge. And I think that I've very easily been able to extend that now to patients where I just try to be a better listener the, the only thing I would add to that is I think I've learned the, the importance of the soft skills as well. You know, like, especially when I was a new practitioner as an occupational therapist, I would feel all this pressure to like have the right answers and be able to solve quote unquote, help people solve the problems. And then, but when I would re- reflect back on my, li- my life as a patient, I would realize that those quote unquote soft skills, like, like you're talking about being a good listener, being kind and compassionate, those are the things that make a huge difference in the patient's life as well. Because unfortunately there aren't ways to solve the problems every time, but if you can help the person at least feel like they're being supported and they're being embraced and kind of you know, they're just being looked at as an actual human being, not just as, you know, patient number four today, you know, and not that you would ever have done that before, but it really brings that home, that humanity home when you've been in that vulnerable position as a patient, you know? Right. And I couldn't agree more. And when clients that I'm coaching ask me how many clients I coach, my answer is always one, it's you. And it's the one I'm working with at the time. And I think that that's where I have changed as a person, as a provider, and as a coach, that it's so important to treat each person, each person individually and not try to fit everybody in a box. That's like, that's giving me chills right now. Yeah, this is, uh, you're fully present. And that's another thing, you know, mindfulness is something for ways to manage my stress as a chronic illness patient. And when I've learned, I'd never realized how much of my life I spent just kind of on fast forward almost, or like 
you know, always thinking about the future and what am I going to do for dinner? What am I going to do this? And, da, 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 and not being like totally in the present moment. And when I learned that was really supposed to be just a coping strategy for pain and chronic illness. And then I was like, wait, this is really helpful for the, my whole life, you know, for my role as an OT and my role as a wife and a, a mom. And yeah, that being like you talked about really being present for another human being. It's like one of the greatest gifts we can give someone else, you know, and ourselves. I agree. It's, it's amazing. And it's so important to be present. And it's like you said, it's very important to me. And it's some, it's one way that I've definitely changed from being a medical provider and now a patient. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, what are some of the tools in your kind of day-to-day toolbox for managing your rheumatoid arthritis, either it doesn't have to be like literal physical tools, you know, like I have a jar opener, although I love talking about that stuff too, but you know, also the kind of stress management, you know, mental tools as well. I have found that my strongest, I call it my mental superpower is adapting. And I think that with rheumatoid arthritis, as I've said multiple times already, you cannot change the disease. All you can change is your attitude about it. And the sooner that we realize that, and the sooner that we learn how to do that, the better off we will be all around physically, mentally, emotionally, relationships, everything. So the very first thing that everybody does is they buy things to add to their arsenal, right? So their tool belt, whether it's jar openers, supplements, fresh kale, right? We've all been there. You get a box from Amazon. It has 20 supplements. You can't choke half of them down because they taste terrible. We've all been there, right? So of course that was the first thing I did. And then I realized that I didn't need to add things to my arsenal, but I really just needed to change the way I was already doing things, the products I was already using, the methods I was using and my mindset about those processes and items. Number one, I always tell everybody, figure out what is stressing you out and throw it away, buy a new one and find one that works. My first thing that went when I was first diagnosed was pants with buttons. And Mm -hmm. I'm actually wearing a pair of jeans today. I sent you a picture before we recorded Mm -hmm. and I have a picture of my waistline, which was a very, (laughs) took a lot of courage to photograph my waistline, but I'm wearing jeans today. And so if you ever see me in jeans or pants with a button, it means I'm having a great day, but I haven't worn jeans in nine months. Luckily my job is either business casual or scrubs. So I wear a lot of dresses and I found that dresses without zippers or buttons and scrubs, of course, were always very easy So I would say six months into my diagnosis, I just stopped buying pants with buttons. And I'll tell you that changed my life so much. And people kind of joke because up until recently, I haven't been very open about having RA and people would say, oh, it's the girl with all the dresses. Or I've had blonder hair in the past and people say, oh, it's Goldilocks with the dresses. And um, it became kind of a a joke in passing that Stephanie wears a lot of dresses and little did they know that I was really just nailing my mental superpower of adapting to this disease. I just couldn't button pants. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What a like concrete example. That's such a specific vivid example. So what I would say is my biggest tool or advice is A lot of people reach for the zipper assisters or the bracelet helpers or the button helpers or, you know, all of these tools, which are great. And they have a place in our world and in our lives, 100%. But sometimes you need to just not buy those pants. It's actually, I feel the same way with a lot of food products or especially beauty products. For example, when I buy canned goods now, I only buy pull top cans. Me too. And and my husband knows it's just the rule. Even if it's double the price, it doesn't matter because operating a can opener was so stressful. It was so mind consuming and emotional for me that 
several years ago, I just said, we just have to buy pull top cans. I don't care what it is. And I found too, with beauty products. Now I only buy the larger, whatever size it is with the pump and everything I have has a pump on it. Now, if something is, mm -hmm, if something is causing me emotional stress and it can be related to my RA and it can be changed, I do. So I would say probably about two years ago, you know, I used to use bar soap in the shower and I was dropping all the time because my hand grabs, my hand grasps were getting weaker and stiffer. Mm -hmm. And despite anybody's recommendation or what anybody thinks I switched to a, I call it a PUFA. I know that's not what it's called, but I switched to a PUFA and liquid soap with a pump and I'm just a much happier human being. So (laughs) I would say that the tools in my tool belt are really just about adapting and knowing that it's okay that if something doesn't work for you, that you replace it if you can. And I think that the easy fixes are what everybody should really start with. That's so perfect. I should send you my little YouTube video where I talk all about pump bottles versus squeeze bottles and why pumps are better. (laughs) I was like, no one else is going to get as excited about this as I am, but now I found you. So this is perfect. Yes, 100%. Pumps are always better. Such a great example. It's funny because as occupational therapists, yeah, we often advocate for using, you know, using the tools, but we also or advocate for adapting what you currently have. And, you know, I've ended up making a lot of videos and fun, you know, demos of different products, but yeah, in the end of the day, the best solution is just the one that works for you. Right. So if you're the kind of person that doesn't want like a bunch of gadgets sitting in a drawer, then definitely, you know, adapt. And so I think that's such a great point. I am so respectful of occupational therapists and I think what you all do is so skilled and so admirable and so necessary. And I definitely think tools are necessary. And with that being said, just to be completely out there, I have jar openers in probably two jar openers in every room of my house, including the garage and both of our vehicles. Mm -hmm. because I can't tell you how many times my kids will buy a Gatorade at 7-Eleven on our way to gymnastics and I cannot open it. And I was so tired of having to ask other people, can you open this? Can you open this? And one day I just bought like 20 of them on eBay. You know, they send you the big box. That's awesome. So I have them everywhere and my kids know to not take them. Like, so there are definitely tools that I use for sure. 100% every day, but definitely there are certain products or items that I just buy different versions or even completely avoid. But I'm totally the same. It's again, it's all just practical. You know, what are you actually going to use? What are you going to, you know, we, we talk in occupational therapy about compensatory versus remedial strategies, like compensatory strategies are the ones that you compensate for the fact that you can't do something. So like using a jar opener and then remedial would be like remediating the underlying problem. So you don't need to compensate. So if, if it's hand strength, then you strengthen your hand so you can open the jar. But, you know, we always are thinking about both items, not just, not just a myopic, like we have to use gadgets because we're OTs. So <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. And using that patient centered lens again, like we might be excited about an aid, you know, but it's like the classic thing for my work in pediatrics was, oh, I have a pencil grip, you know, that the kid should use because they need to have a better grip grasp on their pencil. But if it, if it, an 11 year old in sixth grade doesn't want to use a pencil grip because they don't want to stand out from their peers, then it's not a helpful tool because they're not going to use it. So a tool is only helpful if people use it. Hi everyone. I'm interrupting really quickly to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap. It's a comprehensive online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people learn how to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis. In the course, you get to learn how to manage everything from physical symptoms like pain and fatigue to social and emotional aspects of living with rheumatoid arthritis. I even cover the logistics of things like how to track symptoms and how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments. To learn more, go to myarthritislife.net. Switching gears just a little bit, I wanted to make sure I talk a little bit about, you know, family life because it's such a commonly asked question, you know, what's it like to have small kids with rheumatoid arthritis? You know, I'm actually curious about your first pregnancy, you did not have RA. 
and you know, you developed it or you found out that you had it when your baby was little, but what was your second pregnancy and postpartum period like since you had RA at the time? Well, I was officially diagnosed after the birth of my first. However, looking back, I strongly believe I have had RA since childhood. And my mother actually died very young. And she had these very vague symptoms, markers, workups, et cetera, that somewhat supported autoimmunity. However, as I said before, the guidelines were just different. We didn't For example, we didn't really work up Hashimoto's thyroiditis 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, We didn't really work up or look at things like lupus 10, 20, 30 years ago with mild or even moderate complaints of arthralgias, which is joint pain. Or my mother had a, she had very bad coronary artery disease, very, very young. She had her first heart attack at 40. Wow. Yeah. It like looking back, it's definitely genetic. My sisters have autoimmune diseases anyway. So my point is that I'm pretty sure I've had it my whole life, but it really flared after my first child. And as we all know, hormones are a big, they play a big role in all autoimmunity. Uh, and so I'm mm-hmm. sure that that's what really triggered it and really pushed me into that flare where I was just completely disabled. So the three years between my children, I, dedicated my life to taking very good care of my body. And I was the leanest I'd ever been. I'm, I am a little overweight and I struggle with my weight, like, you know, half of the women in America, but I was the leanest I'd ever been in between my two pregnancies. I was very careful about eating. I was very cautious with supplementation. I developed a regular exercise regimen that my joints could handle. So I went into my second pregnancy much more prepared in a much healthier state. With that being said, simply the weight gain of the pregnancy and the fluid retention, it did cause me to flare a little, but I was much more prepared. I had prednisone on hand. I had knowledge. I was just more prepared to what it would be. I have to say personally with my first child, this is my silver lining, right? Because at every sad story, I really believe has some silver lining in it. There's a silver lining to every gray cloud in the sky. So my first child, I did not have any success breastfeeding. And some women, this can be detrimental, right? This is very emotional. And there's so much tied in our society to being able to nurse or breastfeed your newborn baby. So anyway, my first one, I had no success. I didn't produce any milk. It was very hard because our families were very big proponents of breastfeeding, et cetera, et cetera. My point is with my second child, I birthed him. And then in the hospital, they said, are you going to breastfeed? And I would say, nope, I have to start methotrexate. And I have to say that was my silver lining because nobody nagged me. (laughs) Nobody judged me. Nobody said, why aren't you breastfeeding? And it was unfortunately because I had to take a medication for a disease, but it was definitely my silver lining. And So as far as the second pregnancy, it was fine, much better than the first, but not perfect. And again, I had a silver lining, even with the gray clouds that I finally got like our, like all these people that just back off that I couldn't produce any milk because I had the best excuse in the world. (laughs) Oh, you know what? You are touching on one of my soap boxes because I did a lot of research because I got mastitis four times back to back in the first eight weeks of Charlie's life. So I weaned it. I was able to produce milk, but I weaned at 10 weeks because of the chronic infections because I had gone back on my biologic and, and it, but it also could just, some people are just prone to mastitis, but long term, sorry, short, when I did a lot of research, of course, everyone makes it the best decision for them, but a lot of the outcomes that are attributed to breastfeeding are actually more closely correlated to just maternal socioeconomic status and education levels. And so it's just frustrating to think about how people are pressured so much into sacrificing, you know, the, everything about the mom, sacrificing the mom's sleep, sacrificing the mom's health for the baby to get like this so-called perfect substance when really the outcomes actually aren't, in my opinion, I'm not a nurse practitioner, but the outcomes that I have researched are not strong enough to make that worth it. And I wasn't planning on breastfeeding, even trying a second baby. I just did not feel worth it to me because 
it was, so, it's way more important for like the family system standpoint for me to get adequate sleep, to be actually present. And I will say at that 10 week mark, I will never forget the first night I actually slept. Like I didn't have to wake up and pump around the clock. I was so happy. And I felt like I bonded with my child for the first time. And I see there's so many other parents, they get so myopically focused on like breastfeeding and pumping and all this stuff. And they lose out on that bonding and the child needs that too. So anyway, I like aggressively support people in either combo feeding, which is, you know, com com combination of breastfeeding and, you know, donor milk or formula, or just, yeah, doing whatever's best for the whole picture, not just, right. yeah, seeing it as a nutrition issue. It's Regardless really of what we think, or even what's medically recommended, you have to do what's right for you and your family. Yeah. Beautiful, beautifully said. And so now that your kids are bigger, you know, I found, especially like around age two was about physically the hardest for me with Charlie, you know, he was so big. He was like an, always like an 80 percentile, 80th percentile baby. And they just want to be held. And they're like, you're having to constantly stop them from you know, killing themselves by, you know, climbing the mm -hmm. furniture and stuff. And so how I'm curious how you manage, you know, those demands of, of parenting now that your kids are a little bit bigger. Well, first and foremost, when you have rheumatoid arthritis, there's a lot that goes on in you, right? There's a lot of emotions and pain and feelings and very subjective complaints, which are you know, fatigue is very subjective, right? It's whatever you report. And then there's right. measurable complaints, fevers, or maybe palpable joint pain, right? Maybe your knee is red and hot. The most important thing I found with having a family and having small children is basic communication, which is not specific to RA, but specific to human life. And I love although that. I would think that my spouse you know, my thumb would hurt, right? So I wouldn't want to hand wash dishes. And I would think that my spouse was putting this together, but I wouldn't tell him. And then we would have a miscommunication about dishes. And then of course, you know, there would be some sort of bickering about dishes, but after learning to communicate better, it's been much easier and much more fluid. So there's just a, a short list of things that I, I can do, you know, if, if I have to, one of them, dishes, first of all, is always tricky if my hands are bad, but another really big one is making beds. And when you have two children and yourself, that's three plus beds that you have to change and make. And I really struggle with the fitted sheet with my hands, especially my kids have um, like platform beds. They're kind of raised up. So you have to kind of get on them and it's, mm. you know, it's a little like labor intensive. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we just decided that my husband or whoever would always help with the sheets. So if grandma's over, you know, sometimes I'll ask grandma, can you just help me get the fitted sheet on? And there doesn't need to be a, oh, I have rheumatoid arthritis and my thumb hurts all the time. And there doesn't need to be all of this subjective detail storytelling. I think if you just communicate clearly with your spouse and your family it's so much easier. And then you don't have all those emotions tied to these things like making a bed. And so we've really found our rhythm. So I have been extraordinarily creative and I would love to share these on yours and my social media pages and websites. But so when my youngest was still in diapers, uh, but could walk very capably, I purchased a step stool that was kind of like steps and I built this basically a ramp so he could walk up onto the changing table himself. I love so that. that. Yes. Yeah, so but I wouldn't have to lift him and mm -hmm. he could climb back down. And of course I would assist him or hold his hand or, you know, I would make sure he wouldn't fall, mm -hmm. but it avoided so much of that hand grasping and lifting and twisting that hurts. I, I was also big on, for lack of a better word, corralling. I would corral the children, right? I, I had a lot of baby gates and I actually took, you know, the traditional baby gates that expand in a doorway. Mm -hmm. So I took a bunch of those to a handyman, lovely young man to just screw on some of those so that I never had to manage that hinge because that hinge is hard, right? Mm -hmm. So my gates just stayed open and then I would just pick them up with a hand or an arm, or even my older son could move them because there wasn't a tricky hinge. 
And so yes, but, smart. I mean, they could, they could physically move them, right? Like they, it wasn't a literal restraint, but it still gave them the idea to not pass the gate. And then I had all sorts of tips and tricks and tools for diapers and wipes and long story short is you just have to adapt. You have to do what's right for you. And the most important thing is to communicate your friends, family, loved ones, and children. They don't know what's hurting. They don't know what's going on in your head. And they certainly should not be expected to connect your pain or your emotions with some random chore that is completely unrelated. So it's really important that we communicate clearly and just ask for help when we need it and then help when we can and things that we can help with. So that's what I would say raising young kids with rheumatoid arthritis has been like for me, a lot of adapting, a lot of tools and a lot of talking. I, I love that. That communication is so key. And I feel like, you know, this is episode 19 of the podcast and that's come up multiple times in different episodes. Like, and we do have to, you know, as the patient, we are in charge of communicating what physically, you know, is going on with us and what we need help with. And exactly like you said, you can't necessarily expect somebody whose body works hundred percent perfectly. Like I think in, in, in the case of my husband, I can't expect him to break down every activity and understand like, oh, well, it hurts my thumb when I do this versus that. I just have to say, hey, you know, you know, he's not going to be able to read my mind. Um, although he's an engineer and he's pretty good at at, at thinking of adaptations. I will say for the record, he created a, a platform or raised up cat litter box thing container for our cats. That's actually really, really neat. Yeah. But you know, so he's, he definitely likes to think of those kind of things, but yeah, there's just so many little things in the moment. So that's great. I would, I love the idea of the a ramp that goes up to the changing table. Yeah. And so yeah, maybe tell us a little more about your experiences forming the rheumatoid arthritis coach program. Sure. So when I was diagnosed, like everyone else, mm -hmm. I started on the prednisone taper and then hydroxychloroquine. And then I had to have the discussion with my rheumatologist that I wanted a second baby, which of course changes everything. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I then had to have the discussion on for me, the prednisone and hydroxychloroquine was not enough. And then I had a second baby. And then we had to have the discussion on methotrexate versus leflunamide versus Humira, et cetera, et cetera. We've all been there. And I tried several medications in the process. And I had vision changes with one. I lost almost all of my hair with the second. Of course, I had every side effect in the book from prednisone, including a very serious MRSA infection. I'm so sorry. Wow. Yeah. So just like every other patient, I have been there and I have been on multiple medications. And I felt like my experience as a medical provider, as well as my experiences with the patient of experiencing all of these detrimental side effects that are not very common, right? So we've talked about this before too, Cheryl, but anybody out there who's afraid of medication, you really shouldn't be. There's always a risk of side effects and it might not be the perfect fit for you. And medications save lives. You know, some people wouldn't yes. be alive today if it weren't for them. Unfortunately for me, the first four did not do me any good. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and so with that, well, it actually turned out good because with that, I found that my self-care my mental health, my physical health, my diet, my mindfulness, it all became so much more important. And with that, I found a rhythm that worked for me. And as you know, there's a million people out there right now with a program or a rule book or a guidebook or a diet or a recommendation, right? And everybody has something. And I really believe that every person is just a little bit different. I don't think that these very broad diets work for everyone, like the autoimmune protocol. I don't recommend that broad diet for anyone. I think it's very specific to the person. My point is my program is very tapered to each individual. We spend a lot of time talking. Uh, we track symptoms, we track diet, we talk about medications, and it has been the most rewarding thing I've ever done. 
I have always helped people with their health through my whole career. And it's been amazing. This is a whole new level. I feel like I'm really helping women get their lives back. It's just the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah. And the only other thing I was going to add that I found intriguing when I first found you is that you do a chart review, a medical chart review, which I know that's something that can be so confusing to many patients when, you know, that you help people understand, it sounds like what's in their chart. Yeah. So I think that there are a few things that I offer that absolutely no one else does. The first one is the chart review. And I have to say most rheumatologists and therapists and physicians in general that refer to me find this the most beneficial portion of my service. So I will request records for as far back as anybody has kept them. And I will sit down and go through every page, every lab, every medication. When you look at the person as a whole, you can really start to see things pop out. So I would say a third of the time, I find that there's some very small little tweak that could be made with their autoimmune disease that I can communicate back to their rheumatologist or physician. They can make that change and feel great. I would say the other third of the time, there's a workup missing, whether it's uh, imaging or lab work or some other workup looking for something. And I can also recommend that. The third thing is I find sometimes if I get out the whole chart and look and dig past, you know, the last five to seven years, sometimes we can find that there is a medication completely unrelated to their autoimmunity or something else in their medical background that could be treated a little bit differently. That's like I said, completely unrelated to their autoimmunity or rheumatoid arthritis and work that up. Or you know, one of the most common complaints of rheumatoid arthritis is the fatigue, right? Yes. So, so yes. And everybody can agree with that one. What's really important is that when you do that chart review is sometimes I can find another cause of that fatigue. That's very obvious, but may have been overlooked because it wasn't the specialist. It wasn't on the specialist radar or maybe it was just overlooked many years ago, or in many cases, the guidelines have just changed you know, for example, everybody's familiar with the vitamin D supplementation, you know, 10 years ago, it was really hot and everybody was on vitamin D supplements. And then in the past few years, it's kind of fallen out of favor. So it's kind of the same thing where we can look up stuff and see, you know, maybe this is a cause, maybe we know more now than we did when you were tested five years ago. Let me try to bring this back to the attention of your medical providers. And I have to say, when I first started doing this, I was very nervous about approaching physicians and other medical providers. You know, I didn't mean any disrespect. I didn't mean to step on any toes. I simply just wanted to be a part of the team. And I have been met with such warm, welcoming arms in the medical community all across the nation that I couldn't be happier. That's so wonderful. And I know that some people will be wondering, are you able to provide the service to people across the United States or even across the world? Or is it specific to your state? And how does that work? So I am actually international now. It has been amazing. And I have enjoyed learning. It's amazing how much culture and lifestyle change across our world and how much those can affect disease. And Mm -hmm. it's been amazing. I have clients right now in England, Australia, Canada, and all over the United States of America. It's been a really unique experience. I believe very strongly in individualized treatments from everything from medications to basic healthcare to exercise, diet, supplements, mindfulness, and mindset work. What I do is when you sign up to work with me, you get 12 weeks of my program. We meet for about an hour a week on Zoom. And I do have tons of exercises, tons of resources, tons of guides. I can request records from your providers. I can communicate with all of your providers. It's really quite amazing. I have amazing recommendations on my website from patients I have already coached. And I think the results have actually been above and beyond what I ever expected. 
I have helped people manage their pain, manage their fatigue, and really get their lives back. And I think it's really a great program. And I would love to work with anybody who's really looking for more answers with their rheumatoid arthritis. That's awesome. And yeah, I'm just I'm so grateful for you for your time today and sharing, you know, your personal journey, your personal tips and tricks, and also your, you know, your passion for your coaching program and your experience as, you know, a provider as well as a patient. So it's really just a unique combination of, of kind of life and professional experiences that you have. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, like we talked about with kids, it's a busy schedule with kids, especially these days. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I just wanted to make sure that uh, everybody knows my website is rheumatoidarthritiscoach.com spelled mm-hmm. exactly how it sounds rheumatoidarthritiscoach.com. My email is Stephanie with an F S T E F A N I E at rheumatoidarthritiscoach.com. Mm-hmm. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, which you said you would link this to. Mm-hmm. And I would love to chat with you. My consultations are completely free. We can chat. It's completely risk-free. Just reach out and we'll see what we can do. Oh, so exciting. Yay. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis, from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.